Okay, welcome back to the show, Danielle. Great to have you here. Good to be here. (laughs) I'd like to start with uh, kind of looking at headlines versus reality. The narrative out there is that everything is fantastic. Real estate's great. Stock market's doing okay. We're 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 not going down. It's 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 hanging in there. Unemployment's low. How accurate or inaccurate is this narrative? Should we really be following it? You know, I'd be very cautious right now. Uh, It it makes me uh, very uncomfortable when there is so much agreement and when so few people are on the other side of arguments and the people who are on on, on the other side of arguments tend to be derided. And that's a really frightening environment for me um, because it's so reminiscent of not 2006, 2007, um, but it's so reminiscent of 1999. That makes sense from our perspective. There's definitely a lot of complacency out there with regard to how people are investing their their money at this point. I'd like to talk a little bit about interest rates for a moment. Has the strategy of low interest rates really generated prosperity as the headlines would suggest? Oh, I don't think it benefited prosperity across the nation. I think it benefited a small pocket of individuals on a small 18-by-2-mile island um, called Manhattan. And I'm not trying to be glib. I just, I'm concerned that we see in the background, uh, if, if you, uh, Moody's did an interesting study recently. They adjusted uh, automobile delinquencies for the size of, of the population, and they based it off of jobless claims. And we, we don't have to crawl in there, but They went back to 15 years of data, which is all they had to go back to, and were at the highest level on record. So it it bothers me that there is still, that that, that we've seen so much stress build up in the household space, and yet we have to contend with this narrative that Ben Bernanke was a patriot for riding to the rescue of the economy. It, it certainly didn't go across the nation that way. There are still a lot of people uh, who are very uh, ca- cash rich, house poor, all these years later. Yeah, cash and it, poor, house rich. Sorry, <laughs> but he, you know, I, you have to give Bernanke credit. I mean, he definitely did what he could to save the financial system at the time, but. Really, they kicked the can, a massive, massive can down the road. And now now there is no place to go and get a yield without taking risk. And it, don't you agree that everyone's been forced to take risk? And part of that has been that real estate market where, hey, borrow money. It's cheap. Of course. And you know, I, I, I'm, I'm going to have to give you a tiny bit of pushback because it's a real pet peeve of mine. You know, Bernanke was the... Bernanke was one of the chief architects of the housing bubble to begin with. If you look back at 2003, 2004, 2005, 2006 transcripts. So he was right there, as was Yellen at the San Francisco Fed and Greenspan. uh, But they were all very much uh, on board with blowing up that housing bubble that, that created the need to come to the rescue of the markets in the first place. We didn't have to have the financial crisis we didn't have to have emergency crisis measures because we didn't have to have the housing bubble. And so what do you think that was on their part? Was that uh, their relationships and pressure from Wall Street or was that just not pay- they just weren't paying attention? What was behind their decisions on those actions? You know, I, I, um, there, there was a very famous conversation that occurred in, in Alan Greenspan's office 
when he was warned about the perils of subprime. This is years before it blew up. And Greenspan apparently said, you know, we, we only regulate 25 percent of mortgage lending in this country. We only need to worry about those we regulate. Meanwhile, countrywide financials out on the West Coast, right in Janet Yellen's backyard, becoming the biggest mortgage lender in the world and eventually turns to fraud. And they turned a blind eye and chose to, to, to philosophically align themselves with the idea, which Greenspan, it, it, this, is a, this, was, this was Greenspan's baby, that you cannot come in before a bubble and do anything about it. You have to wait until the aftermath of the bubble and then come in and clean it up. A very, very reckless way of, of thinking, and, and they believe in this idea of the wealth effect, but the wealth effect was very fleeting for all those people who bought more home than they could afford. Yeah, I, I, I remember reading in your book, I think that was one one of the big takeaways was this idea that Janet Yellen watched it all. She, she, it was in her neck of the woods when she was at the San Francisco Fed, and she didn't really notice the bubble that was, that was coming up. But... Um, so looking at the Fed policies right now, um, they've been inflating a bubble and now they're looking to raise rates, which is that a chance that they could break their own bubble? And how long can they keep raising rates before they have to turn around? I mean, you know, Bernanke was lowering rates from over 6%. You think that they could get back up to 6% again? Oh, heavens no. No, 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 no. I mean, I think that the, the difference between the two-year and the 10-year Treasury yield uh, being at 0.32 percentage points right now, I think that, that the bond market, at least, is communicating that, that the Fed will be lucky to get away with one more rate hike before they invert the yield curve, which will ignite fear in the market. Um, it's not so much that the moment of inversion is, is followed, you know, tomorrow at noon p.m. we go into recession. That's not how it works. But the fear that that moment ignites will propel a sell-off in risky assets. So I, I worry that they can't even get to the December meeting, even though Powell is very adamant that he wants four more rate hikes, that he wants to get to 3% on the overnight lending rate. I don't, I don't see it happening unless there's a massive reversal in what we're seeing in the bond market. So if they're having trouble, if you think they're even going to have trouble getting to December, in, in, in some sense, one, you know, the street would ask, why raise rates at all? Why not keep the punch bowl there? Um, is it just a question of optics? I think a lot of people in, in our industry say, look, they're only raising the rates so that they can lower them again later and look like they're actually doing something. Well, there is, there is optics, and there is the need to have bullets in the chamber. I think had, uh, had Jay Powell had his brothers, that uh, g- given the fact that, that 2012 transcripts, he was already talking about uh, shrinking the balance sheet, exiting extraordinary policy. This is before they even implemented QE3. Um, so Jay Powell has been uh, of the mind for a very long time to have much tighter monetary policy than what was implemented by his predecessor. So I I think he really wants to get to that 3% bogey. Um, And I I also sense that they're concerned about financial stability and and that really the stock market has not uh, reacted as we would think it would have at this point uh, to a tightening rate environment. We still have you know, the NASDAQ making uh, record highs, 
So the animal spirits, so to speak, mm-hmm. have not been extinguished by Fed policy. So in this sense, you're saying the, the Fed rate, they keep raising interest rates, which may, you're saying it will then make it harder to borrow money because the, it's going to be harder to service that debt, and that's what's going to squash the stock markets? That's what they're, I mean, I think that, I think that they definitely, I think Jay Powell definitely wants there to be some air that comes out of these markets. I mean, any, any way you measure market valuation, they're, you know, they're, they're at record highs. So uh, he's aware of that. This is an individual who founded the industrials group at a major private equity firm, and he speaks to CEOs all the time. He's aware of uh, how overstretched market valuations are. He's more aware than anybody, I think, since probably Paul Volcker. So is he looking for a a quote-unquote soft landing, though? Because don't you think that if they start to – if they can get to three – you don't think they will. Why not get? Why don't you think that they're going to get to three? And you know, again, do you think there'll be a soft landing? If that's what he's expecting. Look, the Fed has never engineered a soft landing um, <laughs> through a tightening campaign. So um, I, I'm going to go with uh, it's not different this time. I'm, I'm just I'm sticking to that. And again, things that we're seeing come out of the household sector, record high automobile delinquencies, credit card delinquencies are going up, that there's a reason financial stocks are going down. Um, Because we're already seeing stress, we know that the housing market has peaked and rolled over. What is the engine of growth going to be that even begins to suggest that we get to June of 2019, which would make it the longest expansion in the history of the country? Because we've already just we, we are in the second longest expansion right now. So essentially you're saying we are, uh, many others are saying it too, we are headed towards a recession if, and we're getting pretty close. The yield curve is, is showing that in a, in a way. Do you think we're going to see a, another crisis event or just a, a strong recession? It's hard to say. Um, you know, the, the, the European situation is definitely fluid and it could certainly bleed into um into United States markets, we're, we're watching Deutsche Bank. I hope somebody at the Fed is watching Deutsche Bank very carefully uh, because we don't know where systemic risk is going to come from. So I don't know if there's going to be another financial crisis. You can never identify the origin of systemic risk uh, before it is triggered. But what we do know is every time the 10-year Treasury yield begins to approach 3%, another country blows up. So you do see how tenuous the situation is um, and the inability of central bankers to normalize because they used low interest rates and debt creation to foster prosperity, which, you know, it doesn't work over the long haul. So w- where do you see all this going then with all of the debt that's been created, the Fed balance sheet? You think they're going to pay that? You think they're going to get that down? What is, where are we headed with this? I mean, 20, $21 trillion in debt in the U.S., Four and a half trillion on on the Fed's balance sheets. Are are they going to be able to somehow get out of that situation, or are they going to just go into more debt? I think the the game plan right now would would be to hope to reduce the size of the balance sheet by a trillion dollars. You know, I don't know that they'll get there. I just don't. Um, you know, you've got the the head of the Central Bank of India writing a very uh, very public opinion piece in the Financial Times saying. We cannot handle quantitative tightening. Do you hear me, Jay Powell? Um, 
and you've got Argentina and Brazil, and with, you know, we recently saw the Thai bot. So uh, the potential to set off contagion via quantitative tightening is becoming very, very real. And that leads one to question whether or not they'll even be able to pull off a trillion dollars of quantitative tightening. We're barely $150 billion and look what's happened. Right. So then we go the other yeah, way. This was the biggest monetary. This was the biggest monetary policy experiment in the history of mankind. And if you talk to people inside the central bank offline, off the record, they will tell you they didn't know what was going to happen going in and they have no idea what's going to happen coming out. Yeah, we had Nomi Prinz on last week and we were discussing the fact that there is no plan B. And so, you know, what how do the how does the everyday person who's following the regular narrative, what are they supposed to do? Do they just keep following along with what the mainstream media says and just keep doing the real estate and the the stocks and cross their fingers and hope that the central banks can figure it all out? I guess if they're young enough to have that kind of a position, that's fine. If they can't afford to work for 20 more years, they might want to wake, wake up, smell the coffee, and go to the mattresses. <laughs> go to the mattresses. In other words, get, uh, get some of your uh, wealth outside of the banking system. Well, not necessarily outside of the banking system, but outside the markets. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, buying into real estate at these nosebleed valuations is just, uh, you'd have to be nuts. I have a friend who just bought a 3,400 square feet, 2.7 million dollar townhouse in los angeles (laughs) you can't make this stuff up you just can't same thing same thing on the stocks right i mean valuations are are sky high and you wonder how how are you supposed to how are you supposed to continue with that well that's the thing people need to look at the stock market as they would look at a piece of real estate as they would look at a potential property to purchase how are they ever going to make a return if they're buying in at such a high price and they, if, if they look at it more rationally, as they because consumers understand real estate prices, it's something that they understand in their bones. If they take a rational approach like that, they're like, I'd be better off getting almost two percent on a monthly piece of paper and keeping my powder dry. Yeah, I agree definitely with keeping keeping some liquidity available at this point. Of course. Darren actually had a, a question over here as well. Hi, Danielle. Darren from The Real Money Show. Just a quick question. I'm wondering to what extent, and of course, recognizing we have a natural bias in what we do towards, that leans towards holding a portion of physical uh, metals in the form of maybe gold or silver in one's portfolio. Uh, So we certainly acknowledge that bias as our listeners are, are tuned into this show. But to what extent might an asset like that help or play a role, even to a small portion of a person's portfolio, in your opinion? Well, the beauty of, and I'm no gold bug. I just, it's sure, not a, sure. it's not a, it's, it's not a, it's not a viable, it's not a, I, I don't buy in anything that can't be put into practice. I just, I'm like, move on next. However, what we do know from the past two major cycle downturns is that correlations, the, the co-movement among asset classes becomes almost perfectly one. In other words, there's no place to hide dot, 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 except for precious metals. And it is a fallacy. Uh, it, it, may, it, it makes my blood boil. Gold is not someplace to hedge your portfolio during inflationary times because it's, it's outperformed just as beautifully in deflationary times. 
gold is not a hedge for one or another environment. It's a hedge, period. Right. Again, we, we, we tend to talk of it more as a hedge uh, or something to have even in a small part within a portfolio. And I'm curious, as we're talking about what's going to happen at the end of the year before we, we conclude today, do you foresee some major um, changes economically within this particular fiscal year? Are we going to see a very a bumpier third and fourth quarter, in your opinion? I mean, things have been great. Headline news is is has been out there touting wonderful things about the economy. Again, we're reading behind the lines. Do we start to get some mainstream uncertainty uh, in the marketplace in the third and fourth quarter this year? Well, we've certainly seen in the consumer, you know, the funny thing is to answer your question, I'm following data sets I've never followed before to try and, 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 and look into my crystal ball. Consumer confidence never moves the market. But I'm following like a hawk uh, people's expectations for income growth. And that had been going through the roof in the post-election environment, and that has finally turned and come down. Another data set I'm following that is, is beyond obscure is Challenger, Gray, and, uh, and Christmas. They have layoff data that comes out the Thursday morning before every Friday, non-farm payroll Friday uh, jobs report. They also have a hiring uh, index that, that they track, they track companies' hiring announcements. You would think, reading the headlines, that companies are hiring like gangbusters. That's not the case. They can't source skilled labor. But as of last month, the, the, the hiring announcements had decreased to 200,000 so far in 2018 from a run rate at the same time in 2017 of 400,000. That tells me that the underlying demand for employees after we get past the trucker shortage and the welder shortage and the construction worker shortage, because there's only so many of these people to go around, that the underlying demand for employees is not what it needs to be to sustain an economic expansion. And I worry that we're going to start to see this in the third and fourth quarter and that households have begun to communicate it to us via higher defaults higher credit card delinquencies, higher automobile delinquencies, and answering questions about their income growth in the future in a negative way. I mean, to me, it seems pretty clear, and the uh, writing is on on the board, but again, hearing it from somebody that's in that particular market that watches it as closely as you do may reaffirm for our listeners how important it is to make sure you are double checking, you are doing your due diligence. Danielle, it was a pleasure to be able to speak with you today. How do our listeners get in touch with you and follow what you're doing and uh, get all of the material that you're putting out into the uh, public sphere? Well, you know, I have recently launched a, uh, a company. It's, I'm just coming up on the one-month anniversary. We have a publication called The Daily Feather. It is $25 a month. I, this is my first retail product ever. I've always uh, catered to institutional investors, but this is my first retail product ever. I'm not selling anything. I don't have any bias, and it is the best. I had a trader walk up to me on the floor of the New York, New York Stock Exchange a few days ago and say, hey, you're that feather woman. Yes, I am. And it's all about financial literacy and everything I've talked about, I talk about on a daily basis. So go to quillintelligence.com. That's quillintelligence.com and sign up for the newsletter. It's the cheapest money that you will ever spend. It's it's the best return on investment you'll ever get. And I am not a used car sales person, I promise. 
Well, we certainly will encourage our listeners to do just that. We'll have this up on our podcast as well as on the Real Money Show website, and they'll hear it live on Saturday and Sunday of this weekend. So we want to thank you for being part of the Real Money Show yet again. Danielle, hopefully it's not too long before we speak again, and uh, we hope and wish you all the best in the uh, rest of the year. We'll look forward to speaking with you soon. Thanks very much. Likewise. Take care.